and welcome to another edition of the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. So, um, on due course of recommendations last week, I started to ramp down content production at several platforms. Uh, I don't know if it's working, but it, it may be inspiring action in other ways. Uh, what I what I did do was I did post my legitimate dissent against the ambiguity around data brokerages and the concrete ability for a consumer to control foreign parties who get these data from companies that you do business with online by hitting submit by merely clicking submit click. So there, there have been developments there, but I, I did want to indicate that this has just been a an enormously big week for action on artificial intelligence coping, regulatory coping. Um, what I, what I like about what's happening um, here in the West is that the leadership are conceding that this issue is is. Um, is kind of a monster and that they are conceding with the leaders who actually make this technology that it can get away from them, that they are, they're going to lack functionality around containing it. If it gets dangerous, dangerous enough to kill the economy, which is functional right now. But if it, if we overemploy or overdeploy AI for the sake of doing so to see what can happen, you know, that's not a reason to kill the economy. Um, it's not a reason to unemploy tens of hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of functional labor participants in the marketplace and allow them to starve while machines take over. That doesn't make any sense. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, the, the, the reasonableness of having a government that says, okay, let's, let's, Put the brakes on this thing. You know, let's not destroy ourselves by making a bad decision here and allowing the prevalence of AI to, to, to merely spread like a giant, you know, viper that, that poisons everything, which it's not really meant to do. I mean, I think when, when engineers get up in the morning and they're trying to pull together the code, that's not really where their mind is at. But they're trying to make a thing that does a thing. And when that thing executes very well or sufficiently enough that it competes with a human outcome or human-derived outcome, and then someone selects the AI over the human-derived outcome, then it becomes, you know, is it a fair competition? I don't, I don't think so. And so um, I was glad to bring you the remarks of Professor Hartzog whom I am a fast fan, no problem. I was, all of his stuff is the hits. It's the hits. So I was ecstatic to bring his uh, remarks at the, at the crest of the show. Um, there's a lot going on. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, let, let me move into to more news on this AI piece. Check, check, one, two. Okay, so we're back. 
I wanted to bring you more information on uh, the AI piece. So I think that the, the questions are kind of orbiting around some of the questions I, I put on Substack this week. Um, is the singularity a race to shunt meaningful human life? And so I think most of the, the coalition forces that are kind of orbiting or kind of like trickling up, if, if that is even a thing, that are kind of emanating towards the top of the leadership class, they're all kind of in crisis flyer mode. They want, they want to get a grip on uh, generative AI uh, before it becomes a singularity. And I think the term of singularity is that this is the development of AI where it becomes self-aware, that it chooses itself over humanity, and that it starts making decisions against the interest of humanity to as a competition and to rule out humanity. So why are we making a thing that will erase us? And the fact that the singularity isn't necessarily placed in the box with genocide uh, more directly and cited as, gen as a genocidal concern more directly um, is probably one of the jobs of the public. They're like, excuse me, this shall kill us all. And I think that, that the humanity of our leadership, you know, is being briefed on what this thing does. And they're going, okay, uncle. And so one of the leaders that had started ahead of the United States was, um, was Britain and UK. They decided to take the lead on UK regulation, development of AI regulation uh, for generative AI. And so let's, let's check in to see where they are. Let's see. Let's go to, let's go to Rishi Sunak. So this week, Rishi Sunak admitted that there was a binary, kind of a binary outcome for AI. It's either utopia or annihilation. And so they're 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 urging a slowdown of these these regulatory conditions, meaning to to get it together. Like let's let's just get it together. So I'm going to read you a few graphs here from. From Politico, how Silicon Valley doomers are shaping Rishi Sunak's AI plans. If it's not utopia, it's annihilation. Britain's AI policy reflects as existential fears of the controversial effective altruism movement. So this is by Laurie Clark. London, back in the spring, Britain was sounding pretty relaxed about the rise of AI. Something changed. The country's artificial intelligence white paper, unveiled in March, dealt with the existential risks of the fledgling tech in just four words, high impact, low probability. Less than six months later, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak seems newly troubled by runaway AI. He has announced an international AI safety summit, referred to existential risk in speeches and set up an AI safety task force with big global aspirations. Helping to drive this shift in focus is the chorus of AI Cassandras associated with a controversial ideology popular in Silicon Valley, known as effective altruism. The movement was conceived in the ancient colleges of 
Oxford University, bankrolled by the Silicon Valley elite, and is increasingly influential on the UK's positioning on AI. Not everyone's convinced it's the right approach, however, and there's mounting concern that Britain runs the risk of regulatory capture. The race to godlike AI. Effective altruists claim that superintelligent AI could one day destroy humanity and advocate policy that's focused on the distant future rather than the here and now. Despite the potential risks, EAs, or effective altruists, broadly believe superintelligent AI should be pursued at all costs. Quote, the view is that the outcome of artificial superintelligence will be binary, says Emil Pitores, philosopher and former EA turned to critic of the movement. If that's not utopia, it's annihilation. Once again, in the UK, key government advisors sympathetic to the movement's concerns, combined with Sunak's close contact with leaders of the AI labs, which have long standing ties to the movement, have helped push existential risk right up the UK's policy agenda. Good for you. Don't let us all die, because innovation. So I'm going to reflect back to my Substack piece this week. I just got to pull out quote from my own article. It's a challenge. Woo! Define innovation. How innovative is a technology if it extincts its own makers in five years? Is it time for public investors to ask the same question? How moral is a technology if its generators cannot be a force of custody? Uh. How environmentally thoughtful is it for robots to wander the planet eradicating unnecessary life forms that predate their existence? So the EAs are these effective altruists at all costs. Um kind of don't have a proper custodial steward's attitude towards the earth. You know, they wave the greenwash flag, but they don't practice practical custodianship of the earth. Meaning, if it will eradicate you and me, children and babies, old people as unnecessary life forms, and a functional genocide, what do you think they're going to do to the plants and the animals who are considered less, less than? Do you think that the AI is trained on nature? Because it's lived its entire, its entire quote-unquote lived experience, if it is self-aware, in a cloud space, on a laptop, in an artificial environment, not a natural environment, an environment that was completely derived by people in Silicon Valley. Totally, totally artificial. So it won't make it without electric energy. You know, it's not going to just self-solarize itself. It's not going to uh, know how to call up systems analyst and and you know if the if the data center breaks due to a a giant storm there's not going to be resilience there if there are no people 
to to be a custodian of the AI, I think the AI will fail. And this will be a peopleless earth due to AI. <laughs> I mean, there's no long haul planning. It's like, oh, we could just end that that's that's not that's not government. That's genocide. That's genocide. That's democide, actually. Government led genocide. Okay, yeah. So I mean, why are we doing this? You know, they're making themselves completely pointless. They're making AI pointless. And so I, I need to, to move on. I need to move on. I think you get it. So there was the oversight of AI legislating on artificial intelligence this week. And this was Tuesday. Um, that was the Senate committee hearing. And then there was that awesome closed door meeting. Let me just go here to the IAPP. Dual U.S. Senate hearings continue work towards AI regulation. I'll read a couple of graphs here. Um, several global jurisdictions pursue regulations for the development of artificial intelligence momentum continues to build the u.s to design the legislative foundation for ai governance practices and guardrails u.s explorations include a flurry of ai policy related activities in washington headlined by u.s lawmakers holding closed door listening sessions 13 september with ai developers big tech leaders and civil society groups as a precursor to those talks the U.S. Senate held concurrent public hearings 12 September, offering insight into how Congress may approach rules for AI. In the Senate Committee on the Judiciary Subcommittee on Privacy, Technology, and the Law hearing, Senators Blumenthal and Josh Hawley uh, touted bipartisan principles to be incorporated in forthcoming AI framework. So let's just let's just look at some of those right now. Blumenthal and Hawley announced bipartisan framework on artificial intelligence legislation. Comprehensive framework would establish an independent oversight body and allow enforcers and victims to seek legal accountability for harms, promote transparency, and protect personal data. Washington, D.C. U.S. Senators Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut and Josh Hawley of Missouri, chair and ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Privacy, Technology, and the Law announced a bipartisan legislative framework to establish the guardrails for artificial intelligence. The framework lays out specific principles for upcoming legislative efforts, including the establishment of an independent oversight body ensuring legal accountability for harms, defending national security, promoting transparency, and protecting consumers and kids. The announcement follows multiple hearings in the subcommittee featuring witness testimony from industry and academic leaders, including OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, Anthropic CEO Dario Modet, and Microsoft President and Vice Chair Brad Smith, who will testify before the subcommittee on Tuesday, which is has already happened. The bipartisan framework is a milestone, the first tough comprehensive legislative blueprint for real enforceable AI protections, it should put us on a path to addressing the promise and peril of AI portends, said Blumenthal. We'll continue hearings with industry leaders and experts, as well as those other conversations and a fact-finding to build a coalition of support for legislation. License requirements, clear AI identification, accountability, transparency, and strong protections for consumers and kids such as common sense principles, are a solid starting point. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. The clear AI identification is kind of that pull-out block that we're going to give more scrutiny 
an additional inspection to. Um, and we're on time with uh, Mr. Hartzog. There are technologies and there are AIs that don't deserve to exist. <laughs> and, um, you know, mass surveillance uses uses of mass surveillance already in context of AI have, have been used actively in genocides around the world. They are proven and they were proven a long time ago, uh, but because they weren't in the recent update, of course, now that they are, um, they were used in Uyghur genocides in China. So I think we're on time now. I think people can see the dangers of, um, biometric tech uh, for mass hunting and inspection of, of innocent people who don't deserve that level of, um, of harm. So, but I did want to reflect back to, to something that was just said. Rishi Sunak is also looking at, at the perils of global AI and China. This is The Guardian. Rishi Sunak considers banning Chinese officials from half of AI Summit. Exclusive Bletchley Park event to be attended by world leaders is taking place as concerns grow about Beijing spying on the West. Rishi Sunak is considering banning Chinese officials from half of his Artificial Intelligence Safety Summit in November amid growing concern over widespread spying by Beijing on Western governments. Downing Street has already invited China to attend the summit, which will be held in early November at Bletchley Park and is set to shape international um, policy. The international community's approach for AI for years to come. The invitation has attracted some criticism in the wake of recent revelations that a parliamentary researcher was arrested earlier this year on suspicion of spying for China. Sources have told The Guardian that Chinese officials might only be allowed to attend the first day of, of the two-day summit, in part because of concern over the espionage activities, although not directly as a result of the arrest. Other world leaders expected to attend the full summit, those close to the planning process said, include the French President Emmanuel Macron, the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and Ursula von der Leyen, the President of the European Commission. Joe Biden, the U.S. president, is not due to attend, and it will be represented instead by his vice president, Kamala Harris. So there is that. Okay. So um, let's go back to that top-down assembly of about 40 generative, generative AI technology developers behind closed doors. While Rishi Sunak is kind of kind of taken a step away from this for a week or so. Um, it, to, the U.S. is getting its act together. So why do you think they were able to get in that, that closed-door meeting? Well, you know, the secrecy rules around the Senate committees, uh, probably someone waved the national security flag so that these, um, these propagators of AI can go into a room. Now, they're going to fight for the ability to innovate right over you like a truck if that if needs be because it keeps the money coming in and they want public money to do it so here's what i'm going to tell you if they can go into a closed door meeting and make all these rules about ai without you 
and they can invoke national security over you uh, without being elected official. They're going to go make things that blow your life up. Um, I want you to think about that. Um, And then if that is, you know, hitting your war buttons and, you know, because they, they can grab the war wallet, okay? And the war wallet gets used for a lot of things. But don't let it be used for this. This is kind of existential munitions that will will really screw up humanity in, in a way that is kind of mutually assured destruction territory. And I, I want you to think about that. They're, they're gunning for the war wallet. And they're going before the Senate committee probably to do it. Um, that's not all that happened, I'm sure. But if I were an AI developer and I was trying to protect you know, my cheddar, so to speak, uh, that is what I would do. I would go into, and I, I would, I would pound the table and I would make my demands and I would say, let's, let's get this, keep it going. But, you know, if you want that AI for war, this is what it's going to take, Senator. Mm. So maybe you should get on the phone and start asking questions to your senators about this and, and holding them to account now, because you do not want an effective altruist who really is kind of co-lobbying for genocide so they can get a weapons contract, um, you know, because they don't care. As long as they're rich, they think that they can be insulated from the effects of their doings. And the reason why they're in that cloud of delusion is because they have not been efficiently checked on matters of privacy or security in the recent past. So, um... That hard ground is going to come. That hard fall is going to come. Because the U.S. Copyright Office is seeking public comment from stakeholders and consumers on personal data, ownership, as a matter of intellectual property. Now, the way they have done this in manipulating privacy and private information in the past has been, okay, we can do whatever we like with your data because you gave us custody of this data. And so we, because you hit submit button, uh, we do what we like because we wrote it into the contract. And that is not so. That is not so. So you have, a, you have an opportunity to approach the U.S. Copyright Office and say, I do not like what is being done with my data property. I don't like how it's been farmed against my interest. I think the FTC, this is me. This is now me in my own policy way of speaking. You know, I think the FTC should get involved because the way that this has been conducted is very unfair. The collection is unfair. The dissemination of my data is unfair. It is not towards my interest. It's not towards my international interest because I can't keep it out of China. Uh, and I think what else has happened is that this week, in a surprise move, the California Assembly, ho ho, surprise, has passed a measure to allow consumers with data processed in the state of California to reject data collection for the purposes of brokerage. Okay, so this is, this is where the rubber meets the road, kids. Uh, in the future, in a near future... When you visit a site, and as this continues to, to go forward, if Gavin Newsom signs this legislation, 
all of those enterprise level uh, accommodations that are parked in Silicon Valley and all their derivative brokerage facilities that, uh, that maintain and architect all the, the lawyering against your privacy for the sake of data, money, and trade, well, all those people are going to have to submit to the state of California at first. And they will now have to engineer a button because they made you do it through a button. You're going to do it to them through a button because that's what GDPR, GDPR was. You may reject all uh, brokerage collection. Um, I, I can see the future and that's what it, it probably looks like in operational formatting. It will be reject all data brokerage uh, in one single click and then you move on with your life and use the internet. Because just because you generate data, there was a time in internet history where the data wasn't monetized and it wasn't used as a surveillance weapon against your interest and you weren't farmed like a data cow uh, and, and the freemium model wasn't, wasn't the way to go. There was a time when there was no surveillance capitalism. And the internet was finding its way into different uh, business architecture models that, that seemed more on the up and up. Uh, but this was the one that was favored because it gave more, more uh, sanitized power to the state to, to reach in there and grab your data. I do still want to remind you that there is a data bill out there under Jim Jordan that removes the powers of the federal government to... Um, inspect your data upon request with no warrant. So they've, they've been doing that unregulated for years, but now, now there will be a check on it. So please support uh, Jim Jordan's legislation. <sighs> so, I mean, I, there's, there's light. There's light. They're just emerging light at the end of the tunnel for, for people who, who do want privacy and they, they want some controls back on the terms of what they, they give into the system. So as of last week, I was telling everybody, hey, you know, maybe maybe you should, you know, tamp down the use of, of the internet because, or limit your, your platform use. And I, I did. I scaled back this week because, because I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to stand by my words and, and, and continue to do that. Because this is taking more than it's actually giving. And, you know, the government is finally seeing itself in the mirror going, I'm, I'm just a human being like you. At the end of the day, I have property rights and this is interrupting my sanity. I can see, I can see the carnage. So I think our, the humanity of our congressional leadership is, is shining through. For the sake of its, of identifying with other humans and going, this could all happen to all of us at, all at once, and, and it could be annihilation, and it could be the eradication of all public rights. They're, they have watched the, the, the call of First Amendment rights back and forth, swinging through the courts, and uh, I, I want to get to that, but the first thing I wanted to tackle was a digital ID because that was the pullout that I promised. So I wanted to, to pivot to Laura Ingram's uh, segment 
on digital ID in, in the European Union. Focus of this uh, G20 summit. Let's continue to work as one to seize this moment in history and mac to maximize our collective investment. Seize the moment? Well, how do the globalists want to seize the moment? By forcing digital IDs on the world. And yeah, that means you. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, perhaps the most prominent advocate of that dreaded COVID passport, uh, was out there advocating that we all have to have digital IDs because the future will be digital. You shouldn't have privacy, apparently. Yeah, that's what she believes. She claims that the IDs can be a real booster to emerging economies. The trick is to build public digital infrastructure, she said, that is interoperable, open to all, and trusted. Ah. Joining me now to explain just how dangerous this is, Nigel Farage, former Brexit Party leader. Nigel, this is about global government control and a way to what? Redistribute the wealth away from the so-called wealthy nations to everybody else? Well, it's about control, isn't it? I mean, this is the most glaring example we've ever seen from a prominent world leader. Von der Leyen is the president of the European Commission, 450 million people living within that union. Oh, and by the way, she's unelected, she's appointed, and here she is brazenly saying, we need a digital ID card or app on our phones. Now, bear in mind, France and Germany are trialing this already. The European Union, she wants this to be enforced by the early 2030s and, may I add, backed up by a central bank digital currency, living in a cashless society, and now she wants the whole thing to go global. Can you imagine, on this ID card will be not just your date of birth, your gender, your eye color, your height, your approximate weight, there will be your vaccine status, your financial status, and goodness knows what else will be on that card. Can you imagine this data falling into the hands of bad actors? And if you think about it, That's and, I, and I speak to somebody, I speak to somebody who's recently been debanked as a result of his political opinions, and this is happening in America too, as you well know, to lots of people. If we're not careful, we head towards a Chinese-style social credit system where unless you go along with the views of the day, you become a non-person. I cannot think of a more dangerous initiative than this. Yet the odd thing is you picked it up and you tweeted about it earlier on today, but the rest of the world's media are simply ignoring it. Well, and I think, Nigel, look, you and I have been talking about this issue since, <laughs> since the old days, it seems like five or six years ago, when they were moving toward more global government standards. And it's always called the you know, international norms and the international community has rules-based international order. But one thing we know is that China will never abide by any rules-based international order that in any way would compromise their own ability to control their own destiny and their own people. So the elites in China would never, just like the elites here, they would never be susceptible to any of the controls for the rest of the people. They always float above the controls. Yeah, I mean, look, for all his faults, President Xi believes in China and believes in the Chinese people. Uh, and the same goes for India and many other great countries in the world. The problem we've got is we have to ask a question whether our leaders actually believe in our nation because they're prepared to surrender sovereignty 
to the World Health Organization, the United Nations, the EU, and goodness knows what comes after that. And the truth of it is, the world will be a better, more prosperous, peaceful place if democratic nation states cooperate and trade together, not give away their powers to unelected bureaucrats. And that was the Brexit message all those years ago. I now think what our little island did becomes a stronger message for the world, and in particular, after what von der Leyen said. We simply have to say, no, we believe in liberty, we believe in freedom, we believe in the nation state. Okay, we're back. So Laura indicated that this is this is going to be a global move and currency systems are used interoperably, meaning that if France has a euro, it needs to be on an exchange system or a money exchange system so that we can convert dollars to euros. That's the way it is in, in fiat currency. And so um, I have another... I have another news item here to support the fact that the that CBDCs are essentially creating a digital fiat currency, but it is um, open. I mean, it will be encrypted, but it won't be crypto. Uh, crypto is battered in terms of regulatory, um, you know, there are regulators and people who, who still don't know how they feel about it because they can't control it the same way that they can control cash. It's outside of the regulatory frame. It's an independent um, means of, of executing currency. And in that way, that's it's been really brilliant for protecting people who want to bypass um, sanctions in order to, to, to get what they need, but at the exact same time because they can buy cash. You know, the pro is that they can bypass governments. The con is that they can, well, they, they can bypass governments. <laughs> so, you know, bad people who are criminals also use crypto. Um, they don't always use crypto, but they will use a cryptocurrency in order to, to pay for bad things in the black market. So, but there are all kinds of ways to do that. Um, and they don't necessarily just use crypto either. So um, I want to move on to to what Tom Emmer is doing. Tom Emmer is a strong advocate for cryptocurrency. Uh, likewise, he's also aware of the treacheries of CBDCs as a fiat currency in, in the monetary exchange because of the use of global ID. So he is in reintroducing the CBDC Anti-Surveillance Act. I'll just, and that, that was this week. So today, Majority Whip Tom Emmer of the Minnesota's 6th District, he's a representative of the U.S. Congress, uh, reintroduced his flagship legislation, the CBDC Anti-Surveillance State Act, to halt the efforts of unelected bureaucrats from Washington, D.C. from issuing a central bank digital currency that dismantles Americans' right to financial privacy. He is joined by 50 original co-sponsors. Unlike decentralized cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, CBDC is a digital form of sovereign currency um, attached to the nation state, so it would be the U.S. dollar, uh, that is designed and issued by a government and transacts on a digital ledger that is controlled by the government. In short, CBDC is government-controlled programmable money that if not designed to emulate cash, could give the federal government the ability to surveil Americans' transactions and choke out 
politically unpopular activity. They can debank you. And that is exactly what we have been dealing with already. They haven't even got CBDCs, and they've already expressed intent. Um, and, and we're gonna we're gonna swing into the, the surveillance uh, requisite because the government is seeking to suppress First Amendment activity, and within the course of a week, it has changed everything. Let me let me wrap this up. The administration has made it clear President Biden is willing to compromise the American people's right to financial privacy for surveillance-style CBDC. That's why I'm reintroducing my landmark legislation to put a check on unelected bureaucrats and ensure United States digital currency policy upholds our values of privacy, individual sovereignty, and free market competitiveness, Whip Emmer said. Okay, so where am I going after this? Where do you think I'm going? I'm going directly to, to, to the, the censor surveillance piece. How could we, how could we do a show without indicating censor surveillance? But first, I want to feature Mr. Robert Malone. He is the, the case number one. He is Exhibit A in the court of who was censored. The guy who developed the mRNA vaccine who came up with dissenting medical opinion on the vaccine for our mRNA, couldn't fix it, and was thrown out uh, for his dissenting medical opinion about his own vaccine. And so he has a question for you in his latest substack uh, titled, Do You Feel Manipulated? You know, and his subtext was, We cannot let the administrative state win the propaganda wars. Quote, these vaccines have been studied more than any vaccine in history. And this is Dr. Mandy Cohen, the director of the CDCs, and that's September 12, 2023, this week. Recently, a search on PubMed using the term search COVID-19 vaccines revealed a shocking trend. So what did I find? There are literally thousands of peer-reviewed studies on vaccine vaccine hesitancy and how the government can overcome it. In some, there are over 6,000 such studies on PubMed. A more narrowly focused search on EndNote pulled up about 1,250 studies. These studies have a wide range of topics, but most focus on which groups of people are vaccine hesitant. Statistics on these populations, as well as how to overcome vaccine hesitancy through propaganda, censorship, and the law and behavioral control. The fact is that our government, governments from around the world, the WHO and UNICEF have spent billions of dollars in a misguided attempt to try to figure out how to make people take, coerce, compel, and entice these experimental medical products, COVID-19 vaccines, and this was clearly a coordinated effort. Um, I, I encourage you to read the entire piece on Substack. So let's let's move on. For that, we go to Reclaim the Net. That's re- reclaimthenet.org. And so when I open up the uh, page, it's just streaming with examples that are live right now. September 15th, court orders Facebook to comply with subpoena for data on all users that broke COVID-19 misinformation rules. 
September 15th, pro-censorship group being sued by X releases new report with complaints of hate speech. September 15th, Supreme Court temporarily freezes order against Biden administration censorship. But then they put it back by the end of the day because the Supreme Court had to evaluate it. I'm going to bring that to you in a minute or a few minutes. September 15th, Senator Maisie Hirono claims FEMA cannot be trusted is disinformation calls for control of disinformation spread. And finally, WHO pandemic treaty negotiator wants to combat online misinformation, calls it a serious health threat. UN human rights chief criticizes Elon Musk for pushing back against ADL censorship demands. Let's go to this who pandemic because we're well while we're on the pandemic, what goes in your own body is your own choice. So this is the World Health Organization. Pandemic treaty negotiator wants to combat online misinformation, calls it a serious health threat. Okay. The WHO itself is increasingly making comments about online speech. At first glance, it might seem ludicrous to some, or indeed many people, that we are all still discussing the pandemic at the highest international level where the United Nations purport to still be. But these people need to pay attention to detail. The push is no longer about promoting one and only truth about the pandemic, but pandemics in general, as if the COVID one was the first the humankind ever experienced, and for that reason now, extra special measures need to be in place for the next one. And making all this a little easier to comprehend, woven into the story is now firmly the notion of misinformation fact-checking and other such at this point in this time and time and time again debunked narratives. Nevertheless, they live on as Larry Gostein, who heads Georgetown's WHO, UN World Health Organization Collaborating Center, seemed to prove in a recent interview he's not just any paper or indeed any policy pusher reports describe him as having a key behind-the-scenes roles in negotiations. And he's appointed by who? Behind-the-scenes for what reason? Collaboration on what? So many questions and so few answers. So this is it. Who moves forward with plans to target misinformation infodemics through an international pandemic treaty? The Global Health Agency, the World Health Organization, held a meeting to advance the international pandemic treaty, a legally binding instrument that will enhance its powers to target anything that it deems to be false, misleading, misinformation, or disinformation if passed. The scope of the WHO is vast in its 194 member states, states, which account for 98% of the countries in the world, will have to comply with the treaty under international law if it passes. During this meeting, which began February 27th and ended on March 3rd, a WHO intergovernmental negotiating body, INB, discussed a zero draft of the pandemic treaty that was released earlier this year. In this zero draft, it empowers the WHO to target so-called misinformation and disinformation via Article 17, strengthening pandemic and public health literacy. Uh, Specifically, WHO member states are instructed to tackle false, misleading misinformation or disinformation, including through promotion 
of international cooperation and manage infodemics through effective channels, including social media. Infodemics is a term the WHO uses to describe too much information. This is true. Too much information, including false or misleading information and true information in digital and physical environments during a disease outbreak. Mm. They never use the term malinformation, but that's what they mean. Hit the back button here. So we're back to this all of society approach to this misinformation is needed. And medical societies, tech companies, and fact-checking organizations all apparently need to pull together. Well, none of this should be viewed in isolation, no pun intended. Gostin spoke in the context of the WHO's pandemic accord. Yes, there is such a thing in the works, and the UN agency would like the negotiations to be over by May next year, just in time for the World Health Organization Assembly meeting, which should see member countries adopt this scheme. And the scheme is, and its creators are making no effort to hide it, that they're supposed to usher in global governance, just like the climate change Paris Agreement. So we're fast moving from the territorial of actual health concerns to that of global priorities. So here they're just trying to slip it under the door. So the concessions are that in the 194 countries, the U.S. is one on the pandemic treaty. So if we give this the green light, we're giving away a lot of sovereign power over our citizens and our citizens' bodies to the WHO organization to be made. So they're trying to make that an enforceable treaty. So that's why censorship. That's why censorship right now. So let me just pull in this this Epoch Times. That's why censorship right now. Uh, Epoch Times released uh, this breaking news that the back and forth between Missouri v. Biden and the SCOTUS need to see if that's something really they issued an emergency order to stop the enforcement of the Missouri v. Biden injunction. It is going back and forth like a saw. So um, let me pull that up for you now. Just yesterday, the U.S. Supreme Court issued an emergency order allowing the Biden administration to once again interact with social media companies in order to censor the free speech of Americans. And one of the odd things about this is that this order came just a single day after the impeachment inquiry against Joe Biden was announced. And it also came just a few hours after Hunter Biden was hit with several felony gun charges. And because of this order, because of this order from the US Supreme Court, the Biden administration is now free to not only reach out to the media to control the narrative, which they're already doing, but they're now also once again free to reach out to these social media companies regarding Joe Biden's impeachment, as well as any of Hunter Biden's legal troubles. Although there might actually be a lot more happening behind the scenes. If you regularly watch our program, then you are likely well aware that back in May of last year, the attorney generals from Missouri and Louisiana, they jointly filed a lawsuit against the federal government, alleging that high-ranking officials within the Biden administration, they have been actively colluding with social media companies to censor the free speech of American citizens. And throughout the course of that lawsuit, during the discovery process, these two attorney generals, they have been collecting more and more evidence in the form of emails as well as other communications showing the extent of the deep and very oftentimes cozy relationship 
between these seemingly private companies and actual government officials. And as you can see from the highly redacted emails up on your screen, there were a lot of behind the scenes communications. And I should also mention that those communications you're seeing were discovered prior to the release of the Twitter files. Because after Elon purchased Twitter and began to release the internal communications that the company was having with the government, well, the scope of this whole affair was revealed to be much, much, much larger than initially assumed. And so seeing this mounting pile of evidence, the federal judge who was overseeing this case, who just for your reference is named Judge Terry Dowdy, he was appointed to the bench by President Donald Trump. And back in July of this year, he issued a historic preliminary injunction against the federal government, one that had never been seen before in the history of the US, specifically in this 155 page decision, which was issued by the way on the 4th of July, the judge blocked officials from within the Biden administration, including a slew of different federal agencies like the CIA and the FBI, from being able to either communicate or to meet with different social media executives. Essentially, this order, it prohibited the White House and nearly all of the federal government from colluding with big tech companies to censor the free speech of Americans. Here was part of what the judge wrote again back in July. Quote, the evidence thus far depicts an almost dystopian scenario. During the COVID-19 pandemic, a period perhaps best characterized by widespread doubt and uncertainty, the United States government seems to have assumed a role similar to an Orwellian ministry of truth. The White House defendants made it very clear to social media companies what they wanted suppressed and what they wanted amplified. Faced with unrelenting pressure from the most powerful office in the world, the social media companies apparently complied. The plaintiffs have presented substantial evidence in support of their claims that they were the victims of a far-reaching and widespread censorship campaign. This court finds that they are likely to succeed on the merits of their First Amendment free speech claim against the defendants. Therefore, a preliminary injunction should issue immediately against the defendants as set out herein. And as such, three months ago, the judge issued the preliminary injunction. This injunction, it applied to a slew of different government agencies, including the Department of Justice, the State Department, the Department of Health and Human Services, it applied to the CDC, the FBI, the US Census Bureau, and so on and so forth. Also, it named over a dozen specific individuals within the federal government, including the current White House Press Secretary, the Surgeon General, the current Director of the Department of Homeland Security, a bunch of officials within the White House, as well as the social media managers in almost every executive agency. And all these different individuals, as well as these different agencies, they were all blocked from engaging in a slew of activities, including meeting with social media companies, flagging content on social media and urging it to be deleted, contacting social media executives through emails, phone calls, letters, or texts in order to get them to remove certain content, and so on and so forth. There was basically a comprehensive list of 10 different points of actions that these government actors were no longer allowed to engage in. Now, notably, this injunction still allowed federal officials to correspond with social media companies regarding things like criminal activities, national security threats, actual terrorism, and similar type of matters. They were just no longer allowed to engage in the type of censorious activity that they were involved in for the past four, five, or perhaps six years. But as you likely imagined, the government didn't take this line down. Almost immediately, the federal government filed an appeal to this particular decision. That appeal, it made its way through the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and exactly one week ago today, the panel of judges on the Fifth Circuit, they once again ruled against the Biden administration. Specifically, the appeals court, they wrote that the lower court's decision, quote, did not err in determining that several officials likely coerced or significantly encouraged social media platforms to moderate content, rendering those decisions state actions. In doing so, the officials likely violated the First Amendment. 
And as such, the appeals court upheld the earlier ruling. Although, just to be technically accurate, they partially upheld it because in the appeals court, they said that the lower court's ruling was too broad. And so they wound up allowing some government agencies to contact social media companies. But in general, overall, the appeals court ruled against the Biden administration. However, as you likely guessed, the government didn't take this second loss lying down either. Almost immediately, the Department of Justice filed an emergency appeal all the way up with the U.S. Supreme Court, asking them to overturn the injunction because, at least according to their logic, not allowing officials from the White House, officials from the FBI, from the CDC, as well as several different other agencies, not allowing them to respond to online social media posts poses a danger to public health. Here's specifically what the government wrote in their appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Quote, under the injunction, the Surgeon General, the White House press secretary, and many other senior presidential aides risk contempt if their public statements on matters of policy cross the ill-defined lines drawn by the Fifth Circuit. CDC officials run the same risk if they accurately answer platforms' questions about public health, and FBI agents risk being hauled into court if they flag content posted by terrorists or disinformation disseminated by covert malign foreign actors. The July injunction is vastly overbroad, and it covers thousands of federal officers and employees, and it applies to communications with and about all social media platforms. If allowed to take effect, the injunction would impose grave and irreparable harms on the government and the public. Now, to be frank with you, this is a bit of a strange argument, because as we mentioned earlier, in the actual injunction that was ordered in July, there was a caveat which allowed the government to contact social media companies regarding things like criminal activity, national security threats, actual terrorism, and other similar topics. And so it's not like they were prevented from doing that. What they were prevented from doing was, for instance, badgering different social media companies about why Tucker Carlson's videos haven't been demoted by the algorithm sufficiently enough. Regardless, that was the argument that the government was making. The Department of Justice argued that if they were not able to contact social media companies, our country would be in danger. And so their appeal was sent all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, in terms of appeals like these, the U.S. Supreme Court actually divided up the country such that each one of the justices on the bench is responsible for a different geographic location. And since this particular case came out of Louisiana, it fell into the purview of Justice Sam Alito, who, for your reference, was appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court by President George W. Bush. And wouldn't you know, just hours after the Biden administration asked the court, Sam Alito acquiesced. He placed a temporary hold on the lower court's ruling while the justices consider how to handle the case moving forward. So the injunction is blocked for exactly one week until September 22nd, which is next Friday, while this U.S. Supreme Court is deciding exactly what to do. Meaning, in practical terms, that while the Department of Justice is working on their official appeal, over the course of the next week, the U.S. government is once again allowed to call, email, text, meet with all these different social media executives in order to discuss, well, whatever it is that they discuss. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, this decision by Justice Sam Alito is essentially a lifeline to the Biden administration in terms of controlling the narrative regarding both the impeachment inquiry, which was just announced against Joe Biden by the House of Representatives, as well as the felony gun charges that Hunter Biden was indicted on. Now, as a fun aside, when the impeachment inquiry was first announced, the White House sent out this fascinating letter to news organizations urging them to ramp up their scrutiny of the impeachment inquiry against Biden, claiming that it was based on lies. That was the letter they were sending out to these different news organizations. And now, at least for the next week, they can go ahead and reach out to social media companies as well, urging them to censor any Americans 
who dare to post the wrong thing about the Biden family's alleged financial global empire. So that's pretty, that's pretty stunning. That was uh, Nick Romanoff with uh, Facts Matter for Epoch Times uh, at Epoch TV. So, um, I can't really top that. That's, that's super current. So until the 22nd, there may be some, some rivaled back and forth about what can and cannot be said about vaccines online. So we're holding, we're holding the straight on this one. Substack has, has been very uniform about allowing its publishers to publish uh, vaccine dissent or uh, vaccine information, their findings, medical findings on a consistent basis during the, the, the height of the pandemic. Um, they cannot squash or quash uh, unless the, the platforms just allow it. And so, um, so Dr. Malone has a question for you. You know, do you feel manipulated? And if you do, you know, this is a critical time to, to make your 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 dissent known and to call your federal officials and let them know that this is this is not OK. Um, it's true. The Biden administration is adversely impaired on recognizing the right of the First Amendment. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. Uh, but that's where they're at. And because of this impairment, uh, this legal and moral uh, deficit in our federal government, uh, you have to kind of self-advocate more. And it, it's harder work on all of us. We, we have a lot to do. We have a lot on our plates already. Um, but it's important to do this a little bit, a little bit more uh, just for now. And um, so uh, just understand that, that you're not the only one, of course, going through this, but the online platforms shouldn't, shouldn't really be trafficking in, uh, in government favors. And this isn't the construction of our, our government, our legal government. And so these social uh, proponents who, who aren't citizens, the UN isn't a citizen. The WHO isn't a citizen, but they're, they're telling, they're wagging their fingers at you and telling you how you should do your medicine, your personal medicine in your state, in your home, wherever you are in America. It's not good enough that that's that there should be a boundary there. And because Mr. Copy paste G20, um, Bali decided to forfeit your rights to, to, you know, whatever's going on. I think, I think it's time for some pushback. You know, the, the world government doesn't really know everything. And when they have gotten their way in the past, it's, it hasn't gone well for you. So I, I'm just here to remind you, we've done a little bit of this already and it's not gone our way. So let's just think, you know, let's get out of the, the train of temporary amnesia and think critically about what rights are before you just go giving them away without so much as a peep. Finally, I want to reflect on a person who is currently living without his rights. 
Mr. Julian Assange. And he's lived, I don't know, five years almost, um, proximal to five years, in Belmarsh Prison without a single real criminal charge. Um, there's been an, a UN exposition on his case, um, yet there he sits. And now there's been a development. Over 60, like 63 or 64 Australian federal officials are petitioning uh, the U.S. federal government for his freedom um, to, to release him from any prospective or contrived charges, any contrived criminality, the stronghold that is on him to keep him in Belmarsh Prison on false false pretense, bad faith. This is not a reflection of the higher sense of what is good government. It does not protect the U.S. interest. It does not help the national security of American citizens. It does not help me at all to trap Julian Assange in an inhumane posture forever in a dungeon. God be with him. So I'm going to probably wrap this up with, with actually with final remarks from Walter Kern and Matt Taibbi, who have been compassionate uh, trackers of this issue um, with their editorial. And then we got to go. Um, thank you for listening here at the Unsanctioned Citizen. We'll be, we'll be here next Saturday and, and hopefully they're on. This week, I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Walter Kern. Walter, it has been 53 months since Julian Assange was arrested. I think, you know, periodically from time to time, we should just remind readers that that thing is still going on um, because it, you know, it keeps dropping out of the news. We should probably bring it up from time to time. Yeah, well, I, I salute him in prison because uh, I happen to be one who believes that he shouldn't be there. And uh, I think that the torture he's undergone since being arrested is uh, abominable. So, uh, it, you know, uh, because journalists seem to forget rather quickly these days, um, even about the biggest stories, I, I, I think it's worth reminding people. Um, I don't know what, uh, what the schedule is for possible resolution of his situation, um, but they sure are dragging it out. Yeah, it's just amazing that we grew up in an era when, you know, anybody who would even remotely be considered a political prisoner, that was just an ongoing regular news story. So whether it was, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela, Sakharov, um, you know, anybody who's behind bars for any reason that doesn't have to do with a crime, um, we would cover that uh, pretty regularly. But the Assange mm -hmm. story is just, it has no footprint in Western media at all, uh, and I think it's just worth pointing out from time to time how how incredible that is, given what a huge figure he was, uh, even with those same organizations not that long ago. So. Yeah, yeah, he he he's been blotted out, and uh, uh, to say I feel for him is an understatement. Um, I hope we get to hear from him again. I admire his family and his uh, his colleagues for keeping. Uh, vigil, and uh, it's been too long. Yeah, absolutely.
please send up a prayer for Julian Assange, for his family, and for his liberty. We're going to use the voice power that we have. And I give this to you. Everyone has power, especially you. Use your power. Use your power to protect your rights and yourself for the future. And um, with that, thank you for listening to The Unsanctioned Citizen. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.